0: Hey gang, happy Sunday! I hope you had a great weekend. I know I did, but it's kind of nice to slow down on Sunday evening and cuddle up with a good book, right? Anyway, I um, I encourage you to do whatever you're doing, have your dinner, do whatever, and uh, while I read the book. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento. And uh, I'm get right into this. Uh, today we start Unholy Structure by uh, Anna Maria Manalo. She writes really good stuff, and this book is based on true stuff that happened. And I can tell you, I read a little bit of it. I was jumping around last night at every little sound. It was just like that. So I'm going to be here for about an hour reading for you. And uh, I really appreciate you guys coming tonight because I know it's your Sunday night. I'm going to have to use reading glasses. I don't. I have. I have a hard. I have a regular copy of the book, but there's the lighting in here is not that great. Till I make some changes on the lighting so until i do that the only way i can read this thing is probably either on my phone or on my tablet my tablet having issues everything i have is old everything has issues so i'm going to be reading this on my cell phone so let me get my reading glasses on and let's get this going this is a great book and i'm going to go ahead and read the forward by anna and here we go like i said you don't have to watch me read you can just you know sit back have dinner or do whatever it is you like doing. Okay. All right. Unholy Structure, Day One, by Anna Maria Manalo. Here's the author's note on this: This is a nonfiction book based on a case from John Curley, founder and lead investigator of the Harrisburg area Paranormal Society. Names of the actual location—excuse me a second. Okay. Names of the actual location of the haunted building have been changed to protect the current owners, and the and and the person, personnel who witnessed and encountered the paranormal events. Murray Properties LLC is a fictional name designated for the purpose of this work. Any semblance to an actual business is purely coincidental. Okay, chapter one. April 2020. Like I said, you don't have to sit here and watch me read. You, you know, You can just have your dinner and just listen. Maybe turn the lights off and... Lay down on the couch or in, in in your recliner and just listen. All right, here we go. The rain finally came. Oak, maple, and birch tree branches undulated to the breeze. Minutes later, the wind brought the water in sheets, spattering onto a large window, rendering a blurred view of the outside. Behind the window, an older man in heavily stained painter's overalls sat perched on a stool, straining his myopic eyes to take in the view. Brows knitted, Ed glanced down at at the watch on his wrist. He was on the clock and doing overtime. A weekend when most would have come to continue the drywall in the drafty old ballroom downstairs where the wallpaper was de- was descending on its own in strips due to the humidity. Ed had planned to rest after sanding the wood floors in the room he was in. The planks thick and wide, a large broom leaned against the corner of the room waiting to be used. One construction lamp stood fixed to a stand, eliminating a section, the section of the flooring he'd been, been standing. The huge room with its high ceilings and opulent, filigree design darkened suddenly as the rain continued its descent, clouds ominously sailing into view as if on command. The lamp winked, then came back on. Hard to believe it was one of the twenty bedrooms as well-crafted and designed as the rest of the house. He strained to recall how many bedrooms he had seen so far, mentally counting those he had seen the past week alone. He could sit and admire the room all day. Plus, he wanted to make sure he was paid until five that weekend. So he stayed an extra 20 minutes. Or was it 40? They have money up the arse, he thought. Anybody fixing something this ground had to have. Strange, Ed thought. Why didn't everyone else come since they... Promised overtime pay, especially when they heard it was going to be a stormy type of day. So what? had told his manager, who had questioned his decision to go in. Strange for a manager to discourage the crew to not come in. Geez, it's it's not like I'm working outside, Edit replied. Best time to stand down all flooring and paint, a rainy day. Oh well. Maybe they were afraid of getting COVID. He preferred working alone anyway. He was older and an outsider among the younger and brawnier men. Kids, really. Ed continued to watch the rain from his dry perch as he reached for another cheese curl from a bag of Cheetos. He munched away as he admired the wisteria wallpaper that adorned the walls of the room. They don't make them like that anymore, he mused. He was glad it remained better preserved despite the humidity on this third and highest floor just below the attic. The wisteria vines on the wallpaper were embossed onto the fabric, making it appear three-dimensional. When he first walked in earlier that day, he had to touch the wallpaper, noting it was a thick fabric, not reinforced paper. It appeared, from what he could tell so far, that the right side of the third floor seemed newer. For one, the wallpaper was thinner stock and not embossed like the one he admired now. Even the furniture was somehow relatively new. A different style that was more like the 20s when his own parents were born, when radio was king. This side, closer to the left side of the house, was older, much older. He surmised that it was probably the original. Just look at the window, he thought. They had to make them special, and not the prefabs from Home Depot. As Ed admired the embossed wallpaper, he dared not touch it again as his fingers were stained with fake cheese. The food coloring from the junk food he'd enjoyed every day when he took a break. The Cheetos were the spicy kind, the kind he liked the best. The heck with the salt content and the MSG. Who cares? He thought. Halfway down the bag, Ed reached for the Mountain, for the mountain Dew, wiping the red food coloring on his paint-stained pants. Then he heard it, scratching. He tilted his head, grimacing at the effort from an old war injury in his neck. He surveyed the room from his stool as he sipped the soft drink. Scratch. He paused, listening. It was behind a wall, that wall, across from the window where his, where his stool sat. Ed stood up, capping the plastic bottle of the yellow liquid and placing the half-done bag excuse me, of Cheetos on the stool. He turned his back on the window and slowly trotted to the wall, placing his ear against it, scratching. Ed absently scratched his head in reply. He tapped on the wall. Tap, tap. Something was moving in there. Ed darted to the corner and grabbed the broom as he attempted to ponder what the sound might be. As he pondered, he began sweeping and gathering the debris from the varnish he had sanded off the floor. He coughed. Another scratch came in the reply. He eyed the floorboard by his feet. Leaning down, he pulled it from the wall as dust covered his hands. The floorboard screeched in protest, ancient nails revealing their claws. Heavy, real wood. Unlike the floorboards, that were pre-made today. Dust mixed with the Cheeto stains on his fingers. He wiped the dust on his pants adding to the mix of paint colors. He sneezed. A howl, like a dog. Ed stood ramrod straight and backed away from the wall. His eyes, now rounded with surprise, examined the floorboard as the scratching noise seemed to move towards him. Darn! Then the sound of scratches went haywire. Another howl. Behind the wall, closer. Ed strode to the door of the adjoining room to investigate. Broom poised like a weapon over his head. Ed opened it, entered the room, surveying the wall from the other side. He approached the wall, pressing his ear again on the wallpaper drywall. Silence. He slowly backed away, looking around him. He was in another bedroom. This one had a tropical pattern for wallpaper, coconut trees, and palms. Rain rain patterned on the roof. He surveyed the room. A nightstand containing a pitcher and bowl with water stains sat by a large walnut bed Bed, sorry, bed <laughs> near a window. The bed reeked of mildew and something foul. It smelled like his uncle's morgue. Before the embalming. Absorbed in the room's details, Ed momentarily forgot what or why he was there. He paused, listening. He dug, his pa- he dug in his pants to reveal a jar of Vicks vapor rub. Uncapping the jar, he inhaled and then dug into the thick balm. He coughed as he placed some of the Vicks in his nostrils. Then, a sledgehammer of a memory brought him back to his uncle's morgue. Instantly his body became rigid. He approached the bed like a soldier ready to fire, studying the mattress in tufts as if something or someone had been leaping up and down on it the cotton still intact, but with holes. He examined the mattress. Where there's holes, there's mice, he commented to himself. He relaxed. He touched a hole in the mattress. Scratch, scratch. He jumped, backing away as if on fire. This time the scratching noise seemed to come from the room he had been sitting in just seconds before. Darn. Ed dashed back to the other room, determined to see what was making the noise. They had been told to report any rodents or squirrels they saw, and now he was determined to find it. The floorboards still lay where he had pulled them away from the wall. He strode to the stool, pulled one cheesy tidbit from the bag and clipped it, carelessly tossing the bag on the floor. Come on, show yourself. He held up one last kernel as he leaned toward the floorboards as if to tantalize. Silence. Over here, you. A howl. This time it was very close. He sensed something behind him. Ed whirled around. Nothing. He shivered, seeing his own breath. Something had changed in the room. He felt his hairs rise on his head. He touched his head, smoothing the hair down. What remained of his gray hair rose again. Static. His eyes magnified with his rising fear, like bile accumulating behind his throat. Ed turned to grab his cell phone on his open toolbox on the casement of the window. The construction lamp winked out, plunging the room into darkness. Ed inhaled, held his breath. The lightning lit up the room. Tendrils of wisteria on the wallpaper appeared to come alive. As Ed punched the numbers on his mobile, he looked up at the window. The storm was gaining strength. The mobile did not ring. He examined his cell phone. Dead, no bars. Darn. E. A huge head of a dog and the shadow faced him right through the windowpane. Eyes white, the animal was drooling, but Ed could see the trees sway at night through this creature. Lightning. Then the phantom head appeared to be entering the glass. The cell phone clicked as Ed dashed down the stairs through the moth-eaten carpeted halls and past the foyer. Outside, his old Ford pickup screeched for the soul of Pedro. Dust flew from the tires as the truck disappeared down the road. Chapter 2 Two Weeks Later Dust flew and floated like angel wings as John sorted through a pile of paperwork on his desk. He picked up the coffee mug with a Crayola design made by his daughter when she was five. A kindergarten project. Sit, sipping the tepid brew, he reached for a binder and accidentally hit a green-shaded pharmacy lamp. The glass shade now made more uneven. Ping. He paused to listen, holding the porcelain shade. Silence. The sound didn't awaken Sally, his sleeping wife, exhausted from an evening shift. He sighed with relief. The lamp had been an anniversary gift. If she had heard it, she would have scolded him to be more careful. John knew he was too. T- John knew he too was tired, perhaps even overtaxed with stress but the cavalcade of papers on his desk showed showed cases were mounting, as two of the three crew members of his paranormal team had had to part ways at his request. No, you don't have to think. Think like the adults that you were hired to be. This isn't a parlor game. He'd scolded his team. He took his job as an investigator with care and seriousness. He knew well the hazards of being a paranormal investigator after 20 years. He stood... He removed his reading glasses and absently flung them on top of the binder. Papers fell as the binder teetered on the edge of the small pine desk, a purchase made from a local consignment shop that his daughter had noticed a few years ago. The desk was small, but it carried much that was important and helped him organize what he needed the most. Somewhere in there, he hoped, he had stashed or shelved the Bible and the jar of holy water he kept handy. What's making that binder teeter? My reading glasses aren't that heavy, he thought. Then, in the corner of his eye, he spotted the digital light from the clock announcing 3.33 a.m. The binder slid off, fell on its edge, opening to notes on a mansion he had forgotten about. As he leaned down to retrieve it, he sensed exhaustion, and his head swam for a minute. That was when he saw the answering machine blinking from under the desk. He now recalled he had placed it there yesterday when he was attempting to concentrate. The Lamberger House. What was he gonna do next? The phone rang with resolved, and his hand had strayed in a moment of mounting anger to hurl the phone at the wall. But he calmed down he calmed. but he calmed, sorry, despite the interruption, and placed it on the floor. He had hit the silent button, and the rings were forever muted, until he saw the light steady flicker tonight. three hundred thirty three. A synchronicity he'd been seeing the past two weeks. The answering machine continued to blink. Another investigator? Just what I need, he thought. Another wannabe ghostbuster who thought they could be the next Dan Aykroyd sporting a suit in green. John reacted, reaching for the phone, hitting his head on the corner of the desk. Darn. He'd been bumping his head a lot lately. The light from the phone proclaimed the 333 again. Again, triple numbers. It had been over a minute or two. Time stood still. But the light wouldn't let go. A steady red light flickered, beckoning John as if summoning his last desire to keep working despite the fatigue. Surrender to the phone, John. He hit the machine's button. John, it's Rob. Are you there? You want to hear about this? Please call me back. Chapter 3 John crossed the border into the next state. Even in his dreams, he never thought he'd visit. On this side of the river, it appeared that it was busier, more built up, the traffic faster. He didn't care for cities or large towns, and part of it was because of the traffic. He worked in one, just outside of Philly, managing a new construction where the next city bank was going up. He thought about where he lived with his wife and daughter, too far out in the sticks. But then, there was the peace and beauty of being surrounded by trees and a meadow where he could sit for hours on the deck and relaxed after a hard day at work or an overnight at a haunted location his team were assessing. At night, all he heard is, as they ate dinner, with the summer breeze wafting through the open windows, were were cicadas and a million frogs. Frogs and toads that sat iridescent around the pond he would installed one, one early spring, when the ground had finally yielded to a thaw. He was happy to have his own edge of paradise after working in the midst of an endless cacophony of machines and yelling men, mud and steel. Same with the team of investigators who framed his workday evenings and weekend overnights, boisterously letting off steam after checking on a site that left them empty of energy. Ghosts tended to drain people like, like a car to a battery. The meadow, the pond, and the woods recharged his own internal batteries. Nature moved John's compass back to center, like a yogic meditation. John had been drinking coffee, just to stay awake for the drive. Taking the highway past two counties, and then exiting to follow the the GPS as it wound him into the smaller roads of Bucks County, and finally over a covered bridge. A half day off was rare for John, especially for a downtown building where he was one of the managers. They, They would miss him, but he just had to check on what his assistant had said. Rob was always on point when it came to a gut feeling about a place. He valued gut feelings on his team since it was rare. As soon as he reached a mere five miles from the property, his own gut told him Rob might be right again. Rob, a young flute player at the Seasonal Orchestra, who moonlighted as an investigator and museum guide, had taken a call from a hotel owner who appeared frantic on the phone and requested their help. However, contrary to how Rob did things, Making a preliminary visit to the site of the purported infestation, taking notes, and talking in depth to witnesses, Rob chose to leave it up to John. This omission left John perplexed and worried. It had nothing to do with the pandemic. They just wore a 95 mask, as respirators were part of his day job, and and he'd freely given some to his team. John took in the large leafy trees and the graceful blooms that marked the landscape that he passed on the left and right. Unusual, he thought, for such a highly populated state. Perhaps in the center of the state there weren't as many people. Here and there he saw a few acres of woodland punctuated by large houses in brick and stone faces as he progressed into more high-end homes. It reminded him of a childhood movie he had seen with his grandmother one afternoon with Brett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara. Yes. It was gone with the wind. The homes hidden within the hill upon hill of manicured landscapes, stately cypress waving at him, homes he wished he could afford, He could afford a mirage that almost placed him in a sopophoric state. He consciously hit the button on his truck to slide... Sorry, I'm moving at him. He consciously hit the button on his truck to slide the window down and get a breeze. The heady scent of jasmine interrupted his slumber as he drove into the mid-afternoon. No COVID here. The houses were set apart with acre upon acre of wood and open meadow. However, just as suddenly as he felt the deep calm of a forest, the feeling quickly turned to a density and heaviness as he made the final turn onto a narrow avenue of chestnut trees. He glanced down on his watch. It was 4.44 p.m. This was no southern plantation with Clark Gable nor Scarlett in a flouncy dress. It felt funereal. John slowed the truck, taking in the neighborhood houses in states of disrepair, or marked by the the oval-shaped designation of Historic Landmark. The size of the trees and the lack of sidewalks signaled it was an old neighborhood, but the houses were a mismatch of of renovated and, and structures beyond repair. The street lamps were old, rustic vintage. He felt he had driven into a portal to an earlier century. As he stepped on the pedal to slow the truck to a mere 15 miles an hour, there was a palpable gloom that beset his gut, the same one that Rob had alluded to when he had made the brief initial interview with the current owner, by phone to, d- to discern if the case was appropriate for their team. What sort of difficulty, Johnny queried his assistant. The reply he got was vague, as the property owners were reluctant to share what had been on their minds in the final analysis after three construction crews quit in a year. It appeared that no one would stay long enough to finish the work, unless they were in a group. A group? Rob had given a standard reply of, I don't know, which he interpreted as, you need to see it. It's too strange to explain, Rob had added, not to appear abrupt. What are they, a bunch of wusses? Nah. Someone got infected with COVID? Nah. The place is simply creepy for just one person in a room. It piqued John's curiosity that an entire construction crew, brawny men in hard hats, who drank the the deepest of malt ale and bourbon, would be so intimidated that they couldn't work alone. So he decided he'd drive right over and see for himself. John coasted the old Toyota pickup in the shade of an elm tree noting the buzzing bees seeking a large hive nearby. He tried to recall if he'd taken his morning heartburn medicine or his probiotic at noon as his gut stirred. He knew it wasn't in response to the coffee. The humidity had set in after the storm of the day before, adding to the late afternoon heat. The oppressive temperature wasn't lifting, and it was heavier there for some reason. The feeling in his gut was reminiscent of a similar feeling he'd gotten years ago from a 15-year-old who was on the verge of possession, a very tragic case. As he walked, the front yard, as he walked the front yard, hammering resonated from within the house with a vengeance. He concluded that they must have all reported at the same time, as there was much activity even for almost 5 p.m., which in his own crew signaled time to wind down and clean up. He shielded his eyes from the sun which appeared more intense from the expansive front porch that shaded a large number of rocking chairs and aged wicker furniture. It seemed from the windows that the house was beset by gloom despite the sun's invasive posture. The wicker set appeared decayed as he took in the cushions, damp and moldy, still in the seats. Shouldn't someone have moved them all out of the way to ease the hauling of materials of the house? He paused to look up at the fancy lamps on the porch's ceiling bronze. The gas fixtures were still intact. As John stepped through the massive doors, a man in his forties approached from the expansive foyer. John instantly put his N95 on for courtesy's sake, but noted the man had none. Man, you look like you could use a cold beer like me. The man in painter pants and a hard hat grinned as he approached from the interior recesses of the high ceilinged hallway. The man stepped into the light of the open door as he extended his beefy hand, lines on the back like ropes. He had his hair tied in a ponytail, as blonde and thick as his mustache. Maybe later, John Curly, Harrisburg team. John paused for a moment before shaking hands, thinking of his disinfectant which he left in the in the truck. Gary DeSalvo, manager. Nice to meet you, John replied. The hand, thicker than his, he finally shook. Fourth manager, I should qualify. I just got here about a week back. Yeah? Yep. No one wants to stay long enough. That This was said in a whisper. Why do you think that is? A man gestured for John to walk into what appeared to be a very large living room with covered furniture. With one hand, the man pulled the covers off the closet, closest, exposing a couch with an expensive brocade pattern. John sat on the edge, reluctant to soil it even with his pants clean seeing as it looked expensive. An antique. Jerry pulled up a dining chair that appeared to be out of place, its padding torn. He sat next to John as if they were friends meeting at a park. However, Jerry took John's attention again as he whispered, not all the men know, so that could be a problem. They may quit if they see something like the others did. That bad, huh? John found himself whispering back you see the owners want us to rush and get it done despite the noise as they refer to it i see noise i ain't seen most of it yet i heard them already though and i mean heard heard is in gossip among the um no not quite you might want to talk to a few of the men who stayed so far on this crew and the last and the last about which rooms do what they'll tell you so some stayed on they're brave, unlike the last two crews who completely booked. What did the owners hear? I was told they wanted me to stop whatever was spooking the crew. What the owners told us, they just wanted finished. Totally fixed up and upgraded. Suck it up, they said. It's been three years now. John looked around as the man murmured away in a low voice, now venting about the owner's treatment of the new crew. John recalled Rob had talked with, the owner, with one owner, A man from New York's Upper West Side called Morris, who made the initial call. Robert intimated that a man named Morris wanted whatever was happening to the crew of workers, excuse me for one second, there we go, to cease. Okay, crew of workers, (laughs) I just moved this thing, (laughs) to cease what they were doing, as the goings on were delaying the opening of the proposed inn. The owners wanted John's team to stop whatever it was just like that. Amid the clatter and squeal of hammers, power equipment, and so on, John surveyed the painted murals on the ceiling, the sconces, and what appeared to be a conserv- conservatory in the adjoining room. The house was a mansion. It didn't look like much had been done from what he saw from the outside, the foyer, and the room he found himself in. The previous crews didn't get much done, huh? John offered the obvious. Now, nah, after you hear this stuff, you'll see why. Walk around. Here's a list of witnesses, should you want it. You're welcome to check out the entire building. I can't tell you to take your time, though. John sensed the pressure Jerry was under and stood, unfolding the yellow piece of paper the man had just handed him. He began walking after Jerry nodded and continued to mind some paperwork. Most of the crew, John noticed, kept working and sensed the seat and since the steep deadline they had been informed of. They ignored him. He strode into various high-ceilinged rooms, the breadth of which he could only imagine. Almost every room had some covered furniture and a combination of mustiness, something old and some of the fresh new wood. It spun his head, a cacophony of sounds from the workmen and the heating scents. He returned to the foyer, and glanced down at his watch, and he saw it was uh, it was after seven. The sun appeared to be setting through the window as he sauntered past some men who were taking down wallpaper. Jerry spotted him and trotted over. Hey, if I were you, I'd make it quick. We all try to be out by sundown, unless you'd rather experience it firsthand. Jerry gave John a look that said, I wouldn't stay when the sun goes down. John nodded. I'd like to come early tomorrow if you're okay with that. I already told my boss he'd be checking things out. Okay, come early. There's men eager to talk and some so-so, you know? John nodded. Then, over the weekend, I'd like to stay after sundown. Jerry g- gave back. Yeah, really? Yeah, stay overnight with some of my team to record whatever we catch. Knock yourself out. That's what we do. With that, John showed the man his identification from the Harrisburg Paranormal Team as an afterthought. Jerry dropped a pen he'd been clenching between his teeth, taking it back. Darn, you're really that kind of team? John covered his head head with his Phillies hat, turning it around, noncommittal. In previous investigations, when other people had to be involved, other than whoever enlisted his team, there was a chance he'd, he'd be faced with ridicule. He didn't sense that from Jerry, only a look of disbelief in what appeared as respect. He reached for the man's hand again to thank him, and noted the man was sweating, but the beefy hand was cold. John sensed movement behind him. He turned in time to see the entire crew exiting through the front door, their feet making long strides and hairy movements. Jerry looked pointedly at them. You see what I'm saying? I'm sorry, he looked pointedly at John. You see what I'm saying? Then it was dark in the house. Chapter four. Let me adjust here. Okay. It was dark when John got up on his side of the bed, tiptoeing into the bathroom. He glanced at the clock as he entered the connecting door. Eleven eleven p.m. Sally got off at midnight and usually chatted with him about the day's events to touch base when she got home. He made it a ritual to make dinner earlier in the evening with his daughter, Roxanne, once he got home from work. Eat by seven or eight, and help her with her homework. Tonight, he got home later than usual because of the visit to the mansion, and noted Roxanne was beginning to show a rebellion, which signaled that her openness to be helped with homework might end soon with her teen years coming in a few months. He thought about those times and wished his daughter would remain receptive. Then... After after watching a movie, they'd both settled into their rooms to sleep. But he always awakened when Sally got in. The late-night ritual kept his marriage together. John put his ear against his daughter Roxanne's bedroom door and heard her soft snore through the wood. It was comforting. Then he he entered the bathroom, looked out the small window that overlooked the back pond, and relieved himself. He heard a car door slam. Behind him, through the closed door, he felt the draught as the kitchen door opened. Silence. John quickly turned, opened the door, and exited the hallway. He turned into the family room which adjoined the kitchen. Sadly, Sally was in the act of removing a thin sweater. You're home early, I am everything okay hun Sally approached her wavy brown hair passed her shoulders, parted to the side, and tied with a scarf. She was beautiful in a wholesome way that reminded him of the actresses in the old movies who who exigued elegance. She was wearing her nurse's uniform as usual and her comfortable white sneakers. Yes and no. She gave him a kiss and pulled a chair by the kitchen window. I'm going to make you a sandwich, John offered, treasuring the time they had together. Sally tapped on the Formica table and gave him a slight smile. Yes. She pulled the scarf off and her hair came down. Her movements stifled, as if in an internal scream, as if an internal scream was waiting to be to explode. John sensed her tension, having known his wife for half his life. What happened? You know that lady I was telling you about in four hundred twelve? Yeah, she had a breathing problem. She died. They sent me home early. You got that close to her? Sally shook her head as she stood, patted John's behind, and opened the refrigerator to reach for an fanta. Popping the can's lid, she sipped, wrapping her hands around the frosty can before sitting again. I usually do with patience, but there's something else. John paused in the act of slathering a piece of sliced bread with grape jelly. The other piece of bread had a slice of American cheese. Sally preferred her jelly with cheese instead of peanut butter. She came from Hungary, and her parents did it that way. John loved her singularity. It was a sharp contrast to his usual Pennsylvania ways. Sally was pointedly looking up at her husband as he gazed at her with a puzzled look. Are you sitting up with me? I am, hun. Here's your sandwich. I'm all yours. John plunked himself down across from Sally at the little Formica table. The breeze from the window had stiffened. He reached to shut it. Please, hun, do don't take this the wrong way, Sally said. You bet I won't. A pause. Tell me, John prodded. I think you may have brought something home with you on your last investigation. John's face took on a look of concern. Sally raised one hand as, as one reached for the sandwich. Just hear me out. I'm just guessing. Put that down for a sec, John said. I know. John sliced the sandwich in half, two triangles. The Lamburger House, Sal? I know you were concerned about it. I don't know. So let me begin. Sally reached for a triangle, biting into it. Wait, can I tape this? Sally tapped on the table again. John dashed out of the kitchen and was shortly back with his cell phone. He plugged it into a wall and scrolled for the app. Sorry, go. You're not putting this on your podcast, are you? Yeah, for the extra Facebook to hear. For the entire Facebook to hear, ha ha. John chuckled. Silence. She munched, looking at her husband with a serious face. I'm kidding, hon. You got me all wrapped up in fright now. So this lady had COPD. CO, it's a lung problem. Okay, continue. I got there, and she was on oxygen as usual. I checked her chart and proceeded to add medicine to her IV. Okay, what's her name again? Wells, Mrs. Wells. So I was checking to see how she did that morning. She was very pale to me, and she coded. I called for the crash cart. Wow. So the team took over, and I stood at the side and was asked to tend to another patient by the attending. What's wrong with that? Nothing. But as I left the room to go to Mrs. Beach next door, I passed her in the hall. Mrs. Beach? No, Mrs. Wells, who was having a heart attack. Wait, you walked out of Mrs. Wells' room and went to the next hospital room? And Mrs. Wells passed by me, or what seemed to be her? No. You sure? Sally began nodding vigorously. Yes, she was right next to me, walking out of her room while they were trying to re- revive her. Then she must have died. I don't know. Did you tell anyone what you saw? Of course not, but it gets worse. So the arrest killed her? Not yet. I had to re enter the room to recheck the equipment. And the group is still trying to revive her, you know, the, the paddles. And there was a man standing there. No face. Looking down at Mrs. Who else was in the room? For the life of me, the team. Okay, okay, just asking. It was looking at her, dumbfounded. And then this faceless man turned to look up at me. Sally was shaking by now. She reached for the orange soda and sipped. I think you need to... Stop. I gotta get this out. Okay, hon, take your time. When the man looked up, he had a face this time. He he someone you know, yes, he looked like one of the pictures of ghosts you took at that house that scared you. So you think he is one of the ghosts in the house I'm uh, that I'm investigating? Sally nodded. The one I thought looked like he wore a Beatles haircut. Anybody in the team see him besides you? Sh- Sally shook her head. Does anyone ever? John looked at the clock eleven eleven. I need you to take a breath or not go back to that house, John. I've never been that scared. Why would a ghost follow you? You tell me. If I showed you the pictures, would you be able to identify him? Not tonight, please. Maybe tomorrow in the daytime. That's why they sent you home early? She nodded. They figured I got too close to her. To get close is not a crime. It means you care. Sometimes I care too much. Chapter five. Jerry handed John to Starbucks cup. It was five thirty five AM on a Thursday. John thanked Jerry for the coffee, sipping the sugary hang on a second. Okay. Sipping the sugary hot brew. I'm gonna read that again, sorry. John thanked Jerry for the coffee, sipping the sugary hot brew. He pulled the yellow legal paper out of his jeans' pockets and unfolded it. An entire page of green ink in Jerry's handwriting. Nine men. Good thing two, two tilemen stayed. place has got a hundred bathrooms up the yin-yang. You should see the large kitchen, Jerry said. I'll talk to a few, but I'd rather maintain a, remain objective as we're investigating. Whatever you think is best. I think I'd like to ask a few questions of a couple of them who aren't on your list, just to see if they've noticed anything. They'll be wondering why you're here anyway. I'll just tell them I'm inspecting, if that's... Oh, that's fine. Whatever you have to do to get rid of them fast. Whatever those things may be. John raised his hand to stop the man. As I told the owners, there's no fast way to get rid of these things. We just get the evidence and then refer to whoever has the power or authority to remove them. Get out. Really? Jerry nodded, taking in that John was serious. Okay, I'll let you conduct what you need to do. That dining room that looks like a conservatory? That's got some of the guys on the list. It's probably the best place to talk if you choose to interview. No echo. The place echoes? Yep. Where will you be? Jerry points, attic. John followed Jerry's finger up the ornate banisters and the the mahogany stairs of whole wood. Someone was ripping the carpet off at the landing and another was gathering the rails that secured the carpet on each step. The men couldn't have been more than late teens, early twenties. Jerry read John's mind. We have some temps today. Watch your step when you come up here. They just started today. Chapter 6, The Attic, Thursday Night Trevor was a stocky young man in a white t-shirt and jeans, sporting a crew cut. He appeared and had the swagger of James Dean, all the way the hair swept up over his forehead and a bang snaking towards one eye. A vintage 50s man, cocky, twirling a knife as he was using, uh, I'm sorry, cocky, twirling a knife, he was using the corn apple, with unwashed hands, stained with grime. He looked like he came out of a 1950s movie set, and that was how he wanted it to be. West Side Story was his favorite movie. This is going to be a cinch, Trevor thought, as he eyed the the expansive attic and took in the cobwebs and extra furniture that had ended up there for some reason. Rich people tossing stuff at a whim, he concluded. As he put away the knife and bit into the apple, he took in the breadth of the attic, which spanned the entire building. Deeper down, the length of the house, it got darker, more undefined, almost sinister in its historic silence. There was another set of stairs there, he had been told. It was way after six, a hot but dry night that was starting to cool, and he loved it. The entire crew of construction people had just left for the day, leaving him undisturbed. Time and a half, and he figured since he was already ahead, with the month promising a lot of overtime as the renovations were behind, he could now pay off some of his credit cards that were piling up. Trevor pulled the construction lamps in, into position, angling them so that the attic was well lit, especially the floors, which were littered with, detritus, with the detrius of rat and mice traps, roach, roach motels, and all sorts of boxes and whatnot that he couldn't even name. It was a storage of old things he'd seen in thrift stores, but most, not exactly what he would call thrift. They were dusty, some broken, but judging by the uncovered furniture, gawking workers expensive more than a month's rent or mortgage he surmised more than his own trailer home had cost him as he surveyed the room something caught his eye and stood out among the furniture he wove his way through the mire and litter and discarded furniture silverware and lamps of all sorts all dusty he'd save whatever he liked for, for last as he could always get into his truck as always, as he, sorry as he could always get it into his truck in the dead of night, and no one would know the difference. Now he eyed it in the distance. He was only given two lamps, both corded and connected to some kind of generator, that they only reached and lit a few yards from where he stood. From his vantage point, whatever it was looked really vintage, expensive. It glinted gold even in the dim recesses of the cave-like attic and he loved gold. Meanwhile, where to begin? His task was to pull all the furniture away from the walls and separate the boxes from the furniture to help the owners begin cataloging what needed to be sold or auctioned. He also had to bag and seal all the rat traps, garbage, and anything no one else would touch. He was sort of a cleaning, hauling, and whatever needs to be done crew. As long as he was being paid well, he'd even pick up roadkill. It's dead. It won't harm anybody, he thought. He tossed the apple core carelessly into a pile in a corner, reaching for a rag to wipe his hands with. That too, that, too, he tossed, for good reason, I mean, for good measure, into the same pile. Something hopped in the pile. Trevor paused, watching. A nose emerged from under the rag he had just tossed. A mouse, whiskers twitching as it grabbed the apple core, and slithered into the darker area of the attic. Trevor dug, Trevor dug in his right jeans, his tight jeans, revealing a wrapped stick of gum. Unwrapped it, and and chewed as he stood contemplating his plan of cleaning. Then he sauntered forward, pulling off all the tarps that covered the furniture as he went. He strategically pulled out boxes between the furniture, noting how elaborate some of the, some of the statues were. Creepy how they looked. Trevor wove his way past footed plant stands, large alabaster and marble statues of Greeks in manners of undress. Then, in, then an ornate-looking bathtub with claw feet, and with a huge stain on one side, blood. The bottom too. All blackened. He touched the edge. As he examined the tub, he sniffed something unclean, almost like roadkill sitting in the sun for weeks. Whatever the black stuff was, it was very dry, and something like mold was caked on the entire bottom of the tub. Striation marks of of the black stuff made their way to the edge of the tub. He touched the black stuff, then he slipped his fingers. He recoiled in disgust, now searching for the rag he had carelessly tossed. Darn. He rubbed his finger on his jeans, making a mental note not to toss them in the wash pile when he got home. A statue of a woman, naked and reclined caught his attention, riveted, he cupped the naked statue's breast. You like that? he asked the statue. He laughed, not expecting an answer. Finally, he reached the dimmer part of the attic and realized he must be he must be halfway in and therefore in the middle of the pile, he flicked on a flashlight as he went as he went, he put the flashlight between his chin and shoulder, waddling the what sorry wadding the tarps and tossing them towards the side of the walls. He pulled boxes upon boxes, placing them on one side of the attic, kicking the tarps to the side. He looked at his watch in the dim light of the flashlight. Half past eight, a late dinner time. Then, there was the object of his desire, a gold filigree horse in flight. That was what he thought it was. He collected horses, not the real ones, as he couldn't afford them but the kind he would stare at for hours and not have to feed or clean up after them. He approached, tripped, but regained his balance, looking down at a statue reclined on the floor. Another naked woman, this one in profile, glancing up at him. Get out of my way, woman. He grabbed the figure and plunked it on the console table, moving towards the alabaster horse. He touched the figurine about a foot long from head to tail, poised in flight on a stand of marble and a gold base. He touched the gold, lacing his two fingers around it in a caress. He pulled the furniture away to walk around the other side, observing the figure, the horse's head. Watch where you're going, a woman's voice. Trevor flinched and looked up at the source of the voice. The woman in profile stared back at him. He chewed. He traced his fingers on the horse's back, then felt something on his back. He reached. Something had landed on his back. Darn. He swept at it, jetting forward, knocking furniture over. A large spider landed on the horse's back. Darn. Trevor inhaled and then let out a sigh. He was getting the heebie-jeebies. He looked around for a rag, found one sitting nearby, and swept the spider away. The rag had more of the black stuff on it from the tub he had encountered a few minutes ago. Then tendrils of smoke wafted past him. Trevor saw it and sniffed. Fire, the female voice exclaimed. He turned to see behind him. The second set of stairs, by a far window, shut in dark. The darkest side of the attic. Tendrils of what appeared to be smoke issued from below the railing of the stairs. Trevor aimed his flashlight moved toward the stairs, pushing and shoving the boxes aside, the furniture. As he moved, he he noticed his flashlight blinking, the only source of light. I'm sorry, as he moved, he noticed his flashlight was blinking, the only source of light. Who's there, he yelled. He reached the stairs, looked down, black, all black. There was no smoke. Trevor exhaled, his head now pounding. Hello. Silence. He sniffed. Nothing. He paused. Darn. Time for a break. He walked back the way he came, reaching the horse statue again. Then, on the table, he eyed the statue of the naked woman in marble. You deserve a break, too. He touched the marble breasts. He laughed. Something poked him, like a nail from a finger. He looked down, his flashlight catching the back, of what fleetingly appeared as a feminine hand. His eyes became round with fright. Trevor edged away, hopping over detritus in an effort to get towards the lighted side of the attic. Fire, the female voice whispered. Trevor looked around, aghast now, touching his pants. He had soiled himself. He darted for the small opening he had created among the boxes and furniture, and towards the construction lights. He swallowed his gum by accident, and it stuck in his throat. He repeatedly swallowed, trying to clear his airway. Quickly, he darted a glance back at the darker recesses he had just left and looked ahead, spotting the other set of stairs near the lights. He almost leaped down the steps, running two at a time. Okay, guys, that's going to do it for today. But uh, we'll continue with Chapter 7 tomorrow. I mean, uh, tomorrow, next Sunday. (laughs) I'm sure I am. So hopefully you uh, got a good taste of the book. The book's really good, okay? The book's really good. When I kind of glanced over it um, the other night and did a little bit of, let me put this down here, it's going to fall. I know it's going to go. Did a little bit of reading, you know, of the book to to get a feel for it. Ah, oh, there we go. To get a feel for the book, um, I got so into it that um, something um, settled in here. I had, you know, some water bottles down on the floor here, and, And, you know, how they'll they'll, they'll expand and crackle, you know, as the weather gets warmer and stuff. That's what happened. And I was so into reading this stuff that I jumped about a foot. So, it's a good book. Okay, announcement. Tomorrow, the show will be uh, at 9 a.m. It's going to be with Jacob Cooper. And we are going to be talking NDEs and how to handle... um, how to handle grief tomorrow so that's going to be what's going on let me get this down here so i can fix this okay so that's going to be at 9 a.m pacific time tomorrow uh, we're going to be on the air again i'm not available tonight i was out to dinner with with a friend and so this is a pre-recorded a pre-recorded thing but next week i'll be sure to be here the whole time and uh you know we'll just we'll just knock this stuff out and uh, maybe get for another seven um Chapters. It's a really good book, and I, and Anna Maria Manalo always writes good stuff. I mean, this isn't the first thing that we've had from her to read. This is a, this, like this is like the third book I think that uh, we're reading of Anna's. Okay. Anyway, if you liked what you hear, please be sure to follow. If you're watching from Facebook, if you haven't done so already, um, same thing goes for YouTube. Uh, there's a little uh, ghost with the uh, with the magnifying glass and a uh, Sherlock Holmes hat. Be sure to. Click on him and uh, subscribe. We've got over five hundred and forty videos sitting over there, and they're all different topics. And then, like I said, every Sunday we read a paranormal theme book. So there's, I'm sure you'll find something that you like, and it will also uh, alert you to when we have other videos coming up or uh, you know uh, other lives for the show coming up. All right, and yeah, I'm just really excited to start this book, and uh, I hope you guys are as excited as I am with it, and. I'm going to see you next Sunday, okay? No, I'm not. What am I doing? I'm tired. You can tell I'm tired. I will see you tomorrow. (laughs) I'm just losing my mind. I'll see you tomorrow at 9 a.m. Pacific. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I'm losing my mind. All right, guys. This is it. And uh, like I said, I'll see you tomorrow at 9 a.m. Bye.